Hello and welcome to Founder Views. My name is Costa. I'm the co-founder at Web for Realty, a SaaS company that bootstrapped our business out of my parents' basement with no money and no experience into a fully remote company that has generated millions in revenue. In this podcast, I'll take you through my journey talking about business situations I'm currently going through, thinking about, or just find interesting. My hope is to share my experiences and help other entrepreneurs and business owners along the way. This episode is brought to you by Meet Edgar, the social media scheduling tool that manages itself. I've used a few social media apps and none have been nearly as effective as Meet Edgar. I have a ton of content on my blog that I've posted over the years, and my favorite feature is Edgar's auto variation tool, which automatically scans and pulls new quotes from my existing blog posts and repurposes those posts. It saves me a whole lot of time and helps continuously drive traffic to my website while putting my social media strategy on autopilot. I would definitely suggest it. Go to meetedgar.com to learn more. This was a very exciting episode. I'm speaking with Thomas Smale, the founder of FE International, the hands-down market leader for M&A and advisory services for SaaS and other online businesses. They've completed hundreds of millions in acquisitions over the years. If you own a SaaS or any small business for that matter, this is an episode you're gonna wanna listen to in full. We're talking about what potential buyers look for in companies, how companies can increase their valuation, the acquisition process in detail, and much, much more. Not to mention, FE International is fully 100% bootstrapped, which you know I love. Thomas has an awesome bootstrapping story as well. He basically started buying companies with his credit card, believe it or not. You'll hear more about that in the episode. So without further ado, here's my chat with Thomas Smale. So Thomas, uh, I was really excited uh, for, for you coming on. So thank you so much for joining me on the Founder Views podcast. Yeah, thanks, Costa. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So you run FE International, uh, an M&A advisory firm. You've completed hundreds of millions in SaaS and other online business acquis- acquisitions since 2010. Yeah, that, um, that's right. Yeah, so definitely a lot to unpack there. A lot of questions uh, I'd like to ask as well. But let's kick things off by just telling our audience a bit about yourself, your background, origin story, and, and how you, you got started with FE International. Sure. So I'm Thomas Smale. I founded FE International in 2010. In 2010, we were not a M&A firm. The business started with uh, me and like no team at the time, but eventually a small team buying and selling very small businesses for ourselves. Um, we were buying them and then we were selling them within a couple of months. And then we were effectively using the, the profit to buy something bigger. Um, at the time, I was, I was in college and I didn't really have any, any cash. I had no funding. I'd very much like bootstrap the business. Um, so I was always looking for new ways to kind of generate additional revenue streams. So back in mid-2010, after successfully like buying and selling for like a couple of years before that, I wrote a book about buying and selling small businesses. Um, that got really popular at the time. It kind of took off. I didn't know anything about product launches. I'd never sold a ebook, which effectively it was at the time. It was an ebook and then like a, a members forum and some other like similar things to that. That really like took off. And what I thought is that I would then end up making a bit of a bit of a living from selling ebooks and then 
buying and selling businesses myself, what I found, and this is really where the business pivoted, is people weren't actually interested in learning how to sell a business for themselves or buy a business. They wanted someone to actually do it for them. So I didn't even really know it was M&A or business brokerage at the time. I just started helping people sell their business. I wasn't like charging a huge amount for it. It wasn't much of a formal service. Um, at the time, there weren't really wasn't really any way you could sell a business for yourself with an ad, an advisor. Uh, so I did that, and it really the business really just snowballed. We had lots of word of mouth. I was reinvesting everything back into kind of team, office, marketing, all, all those kind of things. Uh, it really just snowballed. So lots of word of mouth. Um, and then in 2012, my current business partner, Ismail, joined. Um, he'd gone and worked in the investment bank for a number of years. Uh, and he's now CEO of the business. So he very much runs the the day-to-day. Um, and when he came in, he helped me transition or kind of pivot into a, a more formal M&A firm. Whereas before, we did lots of different things and we just weren't really that focused. So since 2012, all we've done, or the majority of our business at least, is helping people sell their business okay so that's really interesting so so you're fully bootstrapped which i love um, and i have so much respect for fellow bootstrappers out there because i know how difficult it is um and i also find i have a great connection with uh, with uh, bootstrappers as well but um I, I find there's usually two sets of bootstrappers there's what i think are like the true and real bootstrappers who use their own savings and revenue uh, from customers to reinvest and grow the business and then there's those who 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 had like a, a small angel round or seed funding, but still considered themselves bootstrap for some reason, which I'm not sure if I agree with, but um, you know, that's a debate for another episode maybe. Um, you mentioned you were in college in 2010 and you didn't really have much money. So so how are you going about in purchasing these businesses? Uh, like to be perfectly honest, I was using my credit card. So I would what I would do is I'd buy something at the beginning of the month on my credit card. And then what I would do is I would try sell it by the end of the month so i could pay off my credit card so it'd be or maybe like a hundred dollars on and then i knew i had to sell for at least a hundred dollars by the end of the month and because the things i were buying at the time were very small it was actually possible to get deals done in that time um but a lot of the lessons you learn selling something for a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars apply all the way up the the chain because effectively you're just learning sales and negotiation skills which can be kind of applied at any level it just gets the deals as they get bigger just get more more complex they have more moving parts and they require a little bit more kind of technical knowledge and understanding i love it so so you so you're using credit card to to purchase these small businesses so you definitely fall under i guess the first bucket that i mentioned like the true bootstrapper like you didn't get you didn't have any angel or seed money or huge savings no nothing i was i was a student so i definitely did not have any savings Love it. That's awesome. Um, so I, I know your business involves dealing with you know businesses outside of SaaS as well. But since my audience is primarily in the SaaS world in some capacity, uh, to what extent is your involvement in the SaaS space, and how much of your deals and, and businesses in the SaaS industry? Yeah. So as a, as a business, just for background, for I guess uh, other listeners, we deal with SaaS e-commerce and content-based um, online businesses. We are approximately a third, a third, a third in terms of volume across those three different business models. Um, but I'd say SaaS is becoming a slightly bigger focus as 
time goes on. Um, and in the SaaS space, we are a very clear market leader in terms of M&A firms that do deals at the level we tend to to deal at. There aren't really any other places you can go that get anywhere close to the volume we do. So if you took the closest 20 competitors to us, added up all the SaaS deals they did in the last 12 months, it wouldn't be as many as we've done. Wow. Um, are, are you able to share any volume numbers? Um, so this year we're on track to do around 150 transactions in, in total. Um, so, if, so this year being 2018. So if you work on the assumption that about a third of our business is SaaS, you would expect we'll do around 50 deals in the, the SaaS space. Um, so we'll be somewhere in that, that region come the end of the year. Um, and in terms of um, like deal value, like I said, it's like what you mentioned at the beginning, it's hundreds of millions in total transactions. In terms of involvement in the SaaS space, so one of the things we've done is we've grown the business is we've continued to buy and sell businesses ourselves. Um, but as the M&A business has grown, that's become less of a, less of a focus but we've tended to acquire around one one or two businesses a year, um, generally in the SaaS space recently, which is two, like, has a twofold purpose for us. One is kind of additional cash flow, like we're in the space already. We know the space, so it makes sense to, to do that. But also we find it's much easier to associate with our clients if we've physically been there and done that. So I have invested with Ismail like over a million dollars of our own personal cash into acquiring SaaS businesses. Um, so when it comes to dealing with buyers, we can understand all of the different kind of emotional and kind of considerations they go through in the process. And exactly the same with sellers and business owners. We know what it's like to run a, a SaaS business without outside funding, which is the vast majority of our clients don't have outside funding. Some of them might fall into the second bracket you mentioned, which is um, like they've taken a small angel round, so they might consider themselves self-funded. Um, we don't deal with a huge number of companies that have kind of 50 million in venture funding or anything like that. Um, so in terms of the SaaS industry, at like a personal level, quite heavily involved just because we have the, the businesses we run on the side effectively in that space. Um, and as an advisory firm, like we're a very clear market leader in our space. Got it. That's amazing. Um, so w- with the SaaS um uh, businesses in particular uh, what's sort of like the acquisition size like is there an average or are you sort of dealing with companies that are you know all over the spectrum yeah so it, it, internally we have teams that specialize in three different areas effectively so different geographies so we have a head office in uh, New York and then we also have a regional head office in London so generally our U.S. office will deal with Canadian, U.S., South American clients, and our London office will deal with European and Asian clients. And then any other continents tend to get split up. They're just not a huge amount of volume. Um, and then in terms of internally, we then have teams that specialize by business model um, and then by size as well. But generally speaking, every single deal will have a what we call a VP, so someone senior internally who's very experienced working on every deal um, and overseeing that transaction. So we do deals in the SaaS space anywhere from, like in terms of like deal ranges this year, um, 
up to 20 million with a deal at the moment that's in the 15 million range that we're working on. But then we'll also do deals that are $50,000. The vast majority are somewhere in that that range. So the vast majority are six and seven figure uh, acquisition value deals. Perfect, perfect. Um, so again, sticking to SaaS, just being involved in several SaaS acquisitions, uh, what stands out to you in valuing a SaaS business? So, I mean, there's... so. As a company, the way we value businesses is we've built a proprietary valuation model, which, so one of the things we do as a company is we track tons and tons and tons of data. So every single deal we do, we keep all of that data from that deal. Um, And then we've built out a valuation model, which effectively looks at similar deals we've completed, the variables that we have and we know from those deals. So when we value a business, we can effectively predict what the business is going to sell for based off other similar companies we've sold. So there's a lot of valuation methodologies out there that you might read about publicly, which are quite speculative. They're based on effectively guesswork. And the reason that is, is because most companies do not have any, any data about what businesses will actually sell for. So because we've done over 600 deals, we have a huge amount of transaction data so we can figure out quite accurately what a business is going to sell for. So there's no speculation um, when it comes to that. And in terms of like trends, we tend to see there's lots and lots of different factors we look at. So every single deal will have effectively hundreds of variables we'll analyze to decide the valuation. Um, some of the more important metrics in SaaS specifically. Um, so growth rate is important. So that you can either look at monthly growth rate or yearly growth rate but generally speaking companies that sell for a premium will show growth every single month or are, are we talking about like month. mrr growth or just overall revenue so mrr growth specifically um generally buyers prefer businesses that have a focus on mrr versus arr so what we tend to find is a, a good ratio if you can depending on your business model in your industry but generally 80% of your revenue coming from MRR and 20% from ARR is a is a good mix. Those businesses tend to sell for um, the, the highest multiple. So generally, MRR growth, um, churn is a very important metric. If you have a usage or seat-based plan and you can have people who upgrade, um, if you can get to negative revenue churn or net negative revenue churn, that's a very good metric to have and a lot of businesses in that space i think particularly in the last year we've seen a lot of SaaS companies have begun to wise up to the fact that new customer acquisition is not the only way to grow your business you also have improving customer retention and playing around and tweaking pricing strategies so it's something that a lot of successful companies are doing particularly as they scale they are spending more time focusing on on, on that versus if you go back five years, most companies would spend all of their time and resource on new customer acquisition. So it's been an interesting trend to see. Um, so yeah, generally growth rate. Um, it's also important if you're going to sell, because a lot of bootstrapped founders um, or even those with seed funding, whether it's someone working by themselves or with a partner, I would say most businesses we sell it's usually about 50-50, whether they're by themselves, so solo founder or working with a partner or partners. Um, 
generally speaking, the founder has built the product themselves. Uh, not every time, but the majority of the time. Um, so as the business matures, particularly if you want to sell it, it's important to have things well-documented or ideally a uh, developer or developers or development agency. Anyone that's not you as a developer um, is important, particularly if they can go with the business. So generally businesses that sell for premium have that really well nailed down. They'll have a team. They'll have good documentation. The founder would have started to remove themselves from the business. Um, so it's less of a valuation factor and more of a binary can the business sell yes or no factor. Um, but it's definitely important to think about. A lot of people chase particular metrics they think are really important and they kind of forget the basics and they end up with a business that's like fast growth, really profitable. Everyone loves the business, but it's not sellable because it's so reliant on the founder. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, a, a lot of good points there. I definitely agree with, with churn. There's huge, uh, you know, opportunity with a lot of SaaS companies. They sort of overlook that important uh, part of the MR, MRR equation, which is expansion revenue from your existing customers. Uh, so you mentioned uh, 80% MRR, sort of the sweet spot for you know total revenue. Uh, what would you say? What's a good MRR growth rate uh, from what you've seen in your experience? So, I mean, there's no rules. I guess the, 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 the obtuse answer to that is there's not a good growth rate. I'd say, generally speaking, if there's any growth, that is a good sign. And then the higher the growth rate, the higher the multiple you're going to get. But it's not a, a good growth rate or a bad rate. Because a lot of it will depend on, there's lots of different factors that go into it. If you are, a lot of venture-funded SaaS companies show great uh, MRR growth but they're burning cash to get there. So if you're growing your MRR by $10,000 a month and you're spending $500,000 a month to get there, then on paper that sounds like a good growth rate. But if you actually look at, if you dig deep, it's not, not quite so much. So we see a lot of bootstrap SaaS companies that have a very lean cost base and they might be growing 1% or 2% a month. Um, and over time that can compound quite nicely. So I'd say, yeah, there isn't really a, a good or a bad growth rate. Any growth rate is, is good. And the higher and the more sustainable the growth rate is, the higher your multiple is going to be. Got it. Makes sense. Uh, are you noticing any trends or, or are there any specific industries or verticals where you see most of the action taking place currently in the SaaS M&A marketplace? So uh, as a company, we've always been quite conscious to avoid what we would describe trends. It's a really common question, actually. A lot of people ask me about trends and what they think is like the next hot thing in SaaS. I would say not really. We do a lot of different deals, different business models, uh, like different size businesses, different setup. Um, so I'd say not really. I'd say there is definitely a, a trend in the SaaS space that more and more people are building what I would describe as like a something, so a type of product for a specific industry. Um, so there's, there aren't too many people that we deal with specifically who are trying to build the next sales force. Um, they might be trying to build a, a very specific product to meet a very specific need. So there's less, I guess, like social or industry pressure 
to build the next like unicorn. A lot of people are kind of happy building businesses that are going to be profitable, but in a relatively small industry. Um, so I'd say that's probably le- like that's definitely a trend on the M and A side, um, but also a trend with founders I speak to because we spend a lot of our time kind of investing in the grassroots of the industry. So um, I guess speaking to people who are starting out, helping people who are very early in on in their business. And my advice does tend to be that. It tends to be find something very specific where you can be the best in the market. And that's how you can really succeed as a bootstrapper. I think companies that try to take on someone like Salesforce, for example, head on, are probably not going to be that successful. You're just going to burn through cash probably into perpetuity together. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, and we started back in, I think it was like 2009-ish, 2010, I guess, when uh, there's big tech craze happening. A lot of big companies were, were popping up at the time. And it was almost as if like burning cash was like the cool thing to do almost. Like these were the companies, you know, getting all these investment funds and getting the articles on like TechCrunch and stuff. Uh, but they really weren't profitable or making money. I mean, I guess, you know, from, from my perspective, probably most bootstrappers out there, uh, their sole objective was to just build a, a profitable and sustainable business from the get-go as opposed to to burning cash to grow. Yeah, it, it's definitely become more of a, I guess it's, it's become a whole industry of effectively bootstrappers and self-funded SaaS businesses who are happy to build something small and profitable. And often those businesses become big and profitable as well. So it's a, definitely a, a change from where you basically had to get funding. I mean, it's never been cheaper to launch a business all the way from like hosting costs to hiring developers and talent and freelancers, co-working space. There's lots of different ways you can get a business off the ground compared to say 10 years ago or 20 years ago, where if you wanted to build a SaaS business, you almost had to get funding or it'd be very difficult to get off the ground yeah i definitely see that change as well uh it's about time bootstrappers start getting some love around here Uh, i'm curious to hear from you and your perspective so like for example my company's been poached at least a dozen times by usually like private equity firms looking to invest or acquire which i imagine is pretty common Uh, do you see most acquisitions by private equity firms or are you seeing more strategic acquisitions by other companies Yes, I mean, I guess the first part of that, to answer a question you didn't really ask, but I guess is relevant. A lot of people find us and approach us after they've been approached. So it's quite common, if you have any sort of traction in any business, to be approached by potential buyers. What you tend to find is that the companies doing that sort of outreach tend not to be serious. So those offers go nowhere. But often people, their interest gets piqued by the fact they got... um, got approached and then they come to us and they're like, oh, well, I got approached. It didn't go anywhere. But now I'm curious what my what my um, business is worth. Um, in terms of buyers, we tend to break buyers down into three main groups. And then there's usually a huge amount of overlap between that where someone might fall into one, two, or maybe even all of the categories. Um, and then they also kind of fall into different size brackets. So the three groups um, – individuals, partnerships, husband and wife teams, father and son teams, that that kind of demographic. So individuals buying businesses effectively uh, is the first group of buyers you get. But they can also fall into 
strategics, they could also fall into private equity. Generally speaking, those individuals and partnerships and groups, friends, tend to be buying smaller businesses. Uh, the middle group is strategic buyers, and they can really fall anywhere on the spectrum from the smallest deals out there to the absolute biggest deals that happen. Um, so if you look at companies like Adobe buying Marketo and Magento recently, like it's a strategic acquisition. Um, but then ironically owned by a private equity firm. So a lot of transactions are strategic buyers. Almost, I would say almost every deal is strategic in some way. So what people would describe as a strategic buyer the average seller or business owner would describe a strategic buyer as probably 10 companies that compete with them most closely who are a bit bigger, who they think are going to buy them. In reality, the vast majority of deals do not sell to the 10 companies you think are going to buy them. Um, there's a huge market of buyers out there, like on our list and elsewhere who are actively looking to acquire companies who by yourself you would just never have access to um, because they're not cold emailing any company they can find to see if they can buy them um, and then the final group that you mentioned like private equity groups um, but private equity groups do tend to they're generally only doing deals over a million dollars in valuation although there are some exceptions with companies that would effectively look like a private equity firm that are doing smaller deals they still tend to have a strategic angle, so they might only be buying SaaS businesses in a particular vertical, um, a particular tech stack, particular monetization strategy. Um, it's very uncommon for a private equity firm to, say, buy 10 companies in the SaaS space that are all completely different um, because then it just becomes impossible to run. So almost every buyer is a hybrid of one of those three they tend to be someone who has a strategic reason and then they've either got the money themselves or they have a fund or they've got investors to help them make an acquisition. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, definitely a lot of overlap, but I yeah, totally, totally understand that. Um, let's, let's talk SaaS metrics again. So when a potential acquirer is interested in a company, I know you touched on a few of these, but what are some of the most important SaaS metrics from the perspective of the acquirer? If you can maybe hone in on one or two, I'd imagine what's important to an acquirer might not always be aligned with what's important to a SaaS founder, for example. Yeah, I'd say a lot of buyers, one metric that buyers will look at that a lot of um, bootstrap SaaS businesses tend not to think about is CAC, so cost of acquisition. Uh, and the reason I think that a lot of founders don't really think about this is often they don't have a explicit marketing spend. They might get a lot of word of mouth business and they probably don't have a sales team. So it's very difficult to apply a kind of cost for every lead or like client they convert. Whereas a lot of um, kind of buyers, and buyers are generally going to have a bigger company than you have as a seller. They probably have sales teams, whether that's outbound sales or inbound or whatever that might be, probably have marketing teams and spend, whether that's paid marketing or conferences and trade shows, whatever that might be. So that's an interesting metric we see quite often that buyers care about that a lot of sellers don't really think about at all. 
So with um, with uh, with CAC uh, cost of acquisition, that's very relative, uh, you know, compared to lifetime value. Like, what's a good ratio you think? I know you often hear the famous like three to one. Uh, are you? Do you agree with that, or is that too low, too high? So, so three to one is the most commonly cited. What you tend to find with bootstrap companies is the ratio is much better than that. They'll tend to spend like almost nothing to acquire a a customer because it's all word of mouth. Um, so I think the three to one ratio tends to be cited by VCs because that's mathematically where you can kind of continue to invest and eventually hit profitability. Whereas in a bootstrap company, that's kind of irrelevant because being profitable is not an option. It's basically essential for survival. So you can't you can't live with you can't spend, say, five thousand dollars to acquire a customer that's going to make you fifteen thousand dollars over time and is paying you say a thousand dollars a month because you're effectively 4k down on that client in their first month um the vast majority of bootstrap companies just physically can't do that so i'd say the majority of bootstrap companies will look to acquire a company for less than the first month they're going to get paid so if it's a hundred dollar a month product they're going to want to acquire that customer for $100 a month or less, even if LTV is $5,000. Um, I definitely think that's a complete different in mindset with bootstrap founders where I don't hear LTV to CAC ratios spoken about that often. In VC circles, they'll cite lots of different ratios and metrics they they want to see or have to see. Um, but bootstrappers tend to be a bit different. So at least that's my experience. Um, I don't think there is a magic ratio that works because it really depends on your funding position. If your company makes $10,000 a month MRR and then costs you $2,000 a month to, to run it and then you're running that business yourself and you have two kids and you live in New York, that, that 100 k a year you can take out your business is probably the bare minimum. So you're not going to start investing 6 k a month back into new client acquisition um so i'd say that that ratio does tend to become a bit of a personal choice for companies that don't necessarily want to reinvest heavily into customer acquisition so i mean it's a super interesting question it's the kind of thing that you could discuss all day long i guess the answer is it really depends on depends on the business personal situation what they're trying to achieve yeah i i totally agree with you i actually wrote about this uh in the past um, if you ask me, you know, coming from a bootstrap perspective, I think uh, that benchmark three to one ratio uh, is too low for a SaaS company. It sort of approaches a fine line between growing and staying afloat. Again, especially if you're bootstrapped, I think if your intentions are to run like a profitable, sustainable, cash flow positive uh, business, then you know that three to one, the unit economics like aren't too great. I don't think doesn't leave much room. Uh, buffer to like reinvest in your company pay yourself like cash reserves taxes and all that so um yeah it makes a lot of sense um let's talk about the acquisition process itself and you know again related to to the SaaS side of things so walk us through what a typical acquisition process looks like how long it takes and any other details so in terms of an acquisition this is with us specifically i guess my caveat is this is the experience you'll have with us if you try by privately or through a different M&A firm. Your experience is probably going to be completely different. 
So generally speaking, with us, if you want to buy a company, you will uh, sign up to our mailing list, or you'll download an ebook we've written, or you'll look at some listings on our site, and you will request information on a specific business or multiple businesses you're interested in. Uh, we'll then ask you to sign a confidentiality agreement. Um, from there, depending on the business, we'll often then ask some additional qualification questions. So we usually just want to learn a little bit about you, like um, what's your background, what kind of business are you looking to buy, how much money do you have to invest, um, what's your investment timeline. And that's an important one because a lot of people um, will start looking to buy a business maybe a year or two before they're actually um, ready to buy, which is absolutely fine. From our perspective, we just want to know as much as possible about the buyer um, because effectively as a buyer, we have to sell you to the seller if you want to buy their their business. So it's important we understand um, about the buyer. So from there, we send you a prospectus on the business that our team's prepared. That's usually a 20 to 40 page document, depending on the size and complexity of the business that talks about lots of different things. So like a, a whole interview with the, the seller, similar to what we're doing now, but like written out. So whole interview asking lots of questions, financial overview, traffic overview, metric overview, operations overview. Lots of different questions in there. If you are interested, there's Jen, then generally some Q&A. So you will ask the M&A advisor or advisors in our team working on the deal any questions you might have. Generally, the prospectus itself is very comprehensive and will cover most of the basics. But a lot of people, like we just spoke about in the previous point, will have specific metrics they're interested in that might be irrelevant to the seller or to other buyers. So it may well be you want to know answers to that. Once you've got through that stage, generally there might be some conference calls between the buyer and seller um, and us. Well, we'll facilitate any additional questions you have. Um, assuming you're then interested in the business, uh, we'll then solicit an offer from you. And that's usually in the form of a formal letter of intent, which is effectively a letter which outlines your offer and its terms. Um, once we have that, we will do some further qualification with you as a buyer. So I spoke earlier about the questions we might ask, but we will then make sure you have the cash, make sure you are who you say you are. Um, and lots of other different checks we'll do depending on uh, the business and the relationship with you and the seller. Um, once you've done that, we present your offer to the seller, assuming the offer's been accepted. Um, and generally speaking, it won't be accepted straight away unless you make a full asking price cash offer there's generally going to be multiple offers. Almost every business we sell will have multiple offers on the table. Um, so that's why it's really important we know you as a buyer because we effectively go to the seller and we say, hey, look, we've got your businesses listed for, say, $5 million. We have five different offers. Here are the structures they're all offering. And then here's a little bit about buyer one, buyer two, buyer three, buyer four, buyer five. Um, and then we'll generally push them towards a particular offer or a particular buyer. Because as a buyer, it's really important the seller likes you and gets on with you. So while you're buying their business, um, and it's more of a financial transaction, to a lot of sellers, particularly those who are bootstrapped, you're buying like a big part of their life. So it's very important to them the buyer they work with is someone they like. So assuming your offer is then accepted, it's usually going to be a bit of back and forth negotiation. 
there's then a, a due diligence period, which is outlined at offer stage. So depending on the business and the complexity, it might be a week, it might be two weeks, it might be a month. It's generally somewhere in that one month uh, range or less. You'll go through that period, and that's generally verifying facts. So if the seller says the business makes $100,000 MRR, that's verifying the business makes $100,000 MRR. If they say they spend $7 on a coffee, prove they spent $7 on a coffee. So they can get really detailed into every expense line, make sure it's legit. Um, reviewing code, speaking to key team members, if there are key team members, uh, lots of different things. And again, buyers will look at or focus on different things depending on what's important to them. Um, oftentimes, some very experienced buyers will completely ignore things that um, some like first-time buyers want to see and vice versa. Um, so it really depends. Um, and then simultaneously, while due diligence is being done, contracts will also be negotiated between buyer-seller uh, and the, the advisor. So generally, depending on the, again, size and complexity of the deal, there's generally going to be two attorneys involved and us somewhere in the middle. And the, the general spirit of the agreement should be that what was outlined in the initial offer is then in the purchase agreement itself. So that's generally what we we look to do. But there may well be some things that come up in due diligence that mean specific things need to be mentioned in a contract. And then from there, once a contract is signed, we use a third-party escrow service. So as a buyer, you will wire your money to the escrow service. And then we help facilitate the transfer and the handover, which again will really vary depending on the size and complexity of the business. But generally, there's a training manual and a handover manual provided to you as a buyer and a pre-negotiated support period with the, the seller, which depending on the size of the deal is usually 30 to 90 days. Uh, it can be more than that. It can be less than that, but generally in that, that range. And then the business is yours. Um, the vast majority of deals we do involves the founder leaving within 90 days. So the buyers we work with are people who want to buy and run a business themselves. They are not um, coming in to then offer the founder a job and taking a backseat. These are buyer operators, not people looking for a, a passive investment. You're not buying index funds. You're buying a, a real business you actually need to run day to day. Got it. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for outlining that. Um, so, Thomas, any, any last parting tips for SaaS founders that will help increase the value of their business that you can provide? So, I think like the fundamental, like important thing is just to. This is very cliche, but just build a a solid product that people want to buy. Focus on consistent growth i think one thing that i see a lot of particularly technical founders make the mistake of they will spend almost all of their time and thought on product and they wouldn't put a huge amount of thought into uh like marketing or customer acquisition pricing um and customer retention i'd say the the companies that do best is where the founder has managed to learn some skills in other areas, whether that's marketing and sales, customer acquisition, pricing. Um, I'd say probably the most important thing to do is come up with a pricing model, which is in some way usage or seat-based. So there's a 
potential for expansion revenue. Um, they're the businesses that over time tend to be the easiest to scale. If the maximum a customer can pay you is a hundred dollars a month, regardless of whether they're a Fortune 500 company or a freelancer, then your business is is going to struggle to to scale. Um, so coming up with any sort of user space metric, or at the very least having packages where people can upgrade, I'd say it's like very important in the long run. Um, in terms of increasing value, uh, so well, I guess another important thing is like actually speak to an M&A firm, whether that's us or anyone else. If you're in any way interested in selling at some stage, we offer free valuations. So speak to us, we can tell you what your company is worth today. And the vast majority of clients we work with want to aim for an exit in one year, two years, five or 10 years time. So we'll generally then work with them to figure out what they're going to need to focus on. Because every business is different. Every business is unique. There are different things that might be a problem metric for you that for another business is, is completely irrelevant. So it's quite hard to give blanket advice there. But I'd say the one thing that is important is some sort of uh, upgradable pricing. Um, that's definitely been a trend in the last few years that companies, more and more companies are moving to that that model. Um, and they're the companies we see with the lowest churn. Like if you want to get your churn below a couple of percent a month, which we would consider, say, really good, uh, it's basically impossible if you don't have a, a usage-based model and people can't. Oh, sorry, to clarify, that's revenue churn below 2% a month. Um, it's almost impossible if you don't have usage-based pricing. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, some great advice right there. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Thomas, I do want to be mindful of your time. I I like to end off each chat with what I call the top three, just some fun little questions. Are you up for it? Yeah, sure. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Uh, number one, what's your favorite business book? My favorite book is um, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. I think it's a really good book for bootstrappers. I read it very early on because what you find by reading that book is you'll get an understanding of if you keep, effectively, if you keep doing the right thing over and over again, eventually, eventually you reach a point or a tipping point where things start to get a little easier. I found in my business that was where we got to the stage where we had completed in the low hundreds of deals and we started to get a lot of word of mouth to the stage where it becomes a bit of a snowball effect where if you keep doing the right thing, keep delivering good service, people will talk about you and keep going back. I think Tipping Point is a good fundamental book that a lot of people kind of forget about. I think a lot of people focus on trendy books about marketing strategies and things like that. Yeah, that, that one's been recommended. Uh, it's been recommended to me a few times, uh, definitely on my reading list for sure. Um, you travel a lot as well. So question number two, I'm curious to hear from you. What's your uh, favorite vacation spot? A vacation, that's a optimistic um this year i went to um canada and i did a road trip and drove through the the national parks i think that was quite fun i think i found as a as a founder particularly as i'm like, have a very busy schedule and i'm on the road a lot i cannot sit down on say a beach for a week i like to be busy and doing stuff all the time um so yeah the national parks are nice driving around i live in a city so i, I don't actually have a car 
So being able to hire a car and drive around is quite fun. Awesome. You're the first person who uh, said Canada as a favorite spot. If you're ever in Toronto area, let me know. I certainly will. Awesome. And uh, lastly, Thomas, uh, how old are you? I'm 30. 30. Okay. So if you can go back 10 years, what do you wish your 20-year-old self in you? Uh, I think being successful is going to take time. And if you invest in the right things, whether that's like yourself or relationships i think like ultimately like building relationships is what's going to make you successful with time in my business that's particularly important because we have a service-based company and the nature of the 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 clients we deal with it's often a multi-year relationship before they might be ready to work with us um and a lot of people we work with as well um will sell one business for them and then they come back two years or three years later um to sell so i think there's like no shortcut to building relationship you really just have to kind of get out there put the time in make the effort to meet people kind of make friends and just generally be helpful rather than trying i think a lot of people particularly young people i found have try and push their own agenda way too quickly they don't try and add any value to other people they spend all their time the number of messages i get from kids on linkedin and facebook saying hey can you help me start my business like that's not the right mindset to have just like figure like how can i help you if it was like hey thomas i've been following you for a while i've i've shared all of your posts on my facebook account would you mind if i asked you one question probably gonna get a positive response yeah i couldn't agree more i think uh patience and hard work there's no uh replacement for that i think too many people they they want to get to the finish line without running the race as I like to say, so yeah, I, I definitely don't have any um, like magic secrets. It's really just kind of get your head down, work hard, and focus on one thing. That's also really important. I look when you're young. I, I know for me, I probably was doing trying to do twenty different things that made money, and then ultimately I focused on one thing, which ultimately became our primary re- primary revenue stream. Yeah, absolutely, couldn't agree more. And uh, Thomas, if someone wanted to reach out or get a hold of you, where is the best place they can find you? Uh, yeah, so the best thing to do, because I'm on the road so much, the best thing to do is come to our website, so feinternational.com. Um, pretty easy to figure out from there. If you want to buy a business, go to the buy a business section. If you want to sell a business, go to that section. Like I said, we um, offer free valuations. So if you want to reach out, speak to someone in our team. We're happy to do that for people. Uh, if anyone wants to email me directly, uh, my email is thomas at feinternational.com. I'm always happy to answer questions um, people have. But I'd say if you're interested in buying or selling, I definitely recommend going to our, our website. The team are in the office all the time ready to help. Awesome. Thomas, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure meeting you. We should definitely do this again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Costa. I really appreciate it. All right, Thomas. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, I would love to hear it. Uh, Don't forget to check out webforrealty.com and founderviews.com for more information. Talk to you later. Peace.